Hi, welcome to the NATO Sessions. This is my podcast. I'm comedian NATO Green. Uh, this is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. My guest today is Dylan Brody. Dylan is a hyphenate comedian, writer, storyteller. He opens for David Sedaris. He's put out six albums of stand-up comedy. Most recently, Dylan Goes Electric, uh, live at the Throckmorton, which is on the same record label, Rooftop Comedy, that released my album, The NATO Green Party. Uh, Dylan has written books of young adult fiction. He has written plays. He has uh, re-released the Modern Depression Guidebook. Uh, Super interesting guy with uh, a a lot of stories to tell. I opened for him at Doc's Lab recently, and then we went and uh, sat in his hotel lobby at midnight and talked about depression. That was a good time. So check out the NATO sessions with Dylan Brody. So far, I feel this is going very well. Yeah, you're killing it. So, <laughs> so he, here, uh, I'm. I am interested in the 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 arc of and your thinking about your career, like the degree to which you exist outside of normal comedy columns. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like you don't. You know that there's that there's a, a this circuit of like podcasts that everybody does that the comedy festivals and and you are incredibly prolific and don't monkey around with any of that uh i have not been invited <laughs> it's 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 just that it's it's just that uh, i accept all invitations uh if somebody says you can come talk about yourself for five minutes i talk about myself for five minutes if someone says you can come tell a story and it's got to run eight and a half minutes and it has to be about the rise of the industrial complex in middle America, I will write a story that fits those needs. I find that it's very rare that people ask comedians to tell those stories. It is rare, but I'm saying um, I make it a habit to accept all, all invitations and do my best always to bring my A game. So, and, and you, you started stand-up a long time. I mean, in the... I, yeah, I started to stand up uh, in 1904. Uh, uh-huh. I was traveling with the the Burmese Monkey Twins. They had a, a wonderful act. That uh, it was a brother and sister. Uh, they weren't actually monkeys, but they had these costumes. They did a thing, um, and uh, we traveled on what was then the 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 burgeoning vaudeville circuit. Um, you know, when the saloons started to close down and uh, the vaudeville stages really started to take off, the, the, the Monkey Twins were an extraordinary hit. And I had the joy and the privilege of opening for them uh, across, across this great country. And, and in those days, it was a great country. Um, and then, uh, of course, through World War One, I, I was working the European circuit. How's your League of Nations chunk? Uh, you know, I cut it last year. I, I was working with Jimmy J.J. Walker, and I realized that uh, there were two things in the show that weren't going well. One was my League of Nations chunk, uh-huh. and the other was his What's With Miniskirts piece. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't tell other people what to do with their acts, but I realize that eventually you have to generate new material. So, 
Uh, earlier tonight, you said that you started at stand up at 17 at the Improv in New York. That is correct. And about well, no, I started at 17 at open mics in New York. At 18, I think I got into the Improv. And which which was and is what year? Um, I can figure that out. In 81, I started doing stand-up in New York. In 82, I got in at the Improv. And uh, so by then, the comic strip is in swing and Catch a Rising Star. Yes. Um, it was actually, we didn't know it at the time, but it was the beginning of the comedy boom. The comedy boom began, really began with the movie Fame, which told us that if you want to be a comic, then you write six minutes and you go perform it at Catch a Rising Star and Richard Belzer will host. And then if you're funny, you're successful. That was the mythology that started with fame. And that mythology was then further... Uh, What's the, imbued in, in, in instilled in the American psyche with the movie Punchline several years later, about 10 years later, I guess, that said, uh, you know, you'll be at your best when you throw away your material and you just improvise um, because that's what the other comics are, are telling you in the locker room at the club. Um, there's the, the mythology around stand-up comedy is almost the same as the mythology around martial arts. You know, there's this sense that it is somehow magical and that uh, they do this impossible thing and it's ultimately a learned skill like any other. Um, and it takes time and dedication and work and effort and energy. And it takes a while to get past just the mythology to get down to your own work. And do you think... Uh so do you think that like the 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 legend the, of you know the sad clown and like the particular way that people have to be damaged to be a comedian do you think there's a particular psychological profile that makes a comedian I've been talking about this a lot lately because um I have a a book called The Modern Depression Guidebook that is a self-help satire and it's a new book uh, what it's a new book uh, no actually it came out 3 years ago Available on uh, Amazon and uh, downloadable. Okay. Um, it, it, it was when I, when I googled you. It was the fourth link. Was the interview about the book? So. Okay. Um, it was re-released in August this year. Okay, that's what with it's... new artwork and on the cover and a couple of little changes. And by pure tragic serendipity the month that it was scheduled to be re-released by the company in England, Autharium, in the same month, Robin Williams killed himself. And there was this horrible thing that happened where I started getting calls for interviews about depression, and I had worked with Robin. I would written a sketch that he had done and stuff. So I was getting all these radio interviews and there was this conversation between my now former manager and my PR guy and me, you know, a conference call and they were saying, you know, this is an opportunity and we can get you booked on. I was going, I don't want to be profiting on Robin Williams' death. And they said, no, no, we'll distance you. You know, we'll get you on the show and you'll talk about depression and the importance of talking about depression. And um, 
and and we'll make sure that they plug the book. And I was like, okay, because I don't want to be that guy, but I also want to have a career, and these are the people I'm supposed to trust to help me build my career. And I was just spiraling into that, oh, God, I'm a Satanista. Uh, and I called Autharium and said, listen, I'm, we're getting a spike in sales. I want to donate all of my profits, all of my royalties for this month to, this is in, I guess, September. I want to, all the royalties should go to some charity. And it went to mind.org.uk. Um, and they said, great, we'll donate our profits as well on it for the month. And I said, great. And I called my manager and I said, I'm donating, I know this is going to cost you some money, but I'm donating all my royalties because I hate myself. And he said, oh, what a great marketing strategy. And, <laughs> and then I fired him. Um, but uh, Because he was dead inside. But yeah, because he was exactly what I don't want to be turning into. And I don't want my advice coming from the people that I don't want to be. Um, but as a result of that, I've been talking a lot, I've been interviewed a lot about depression and how it relates to comedy. And here's the thing. I think we attribute causality where there is only correlation. Comedy requires a certain level of intellect. Most comedy requires a certain level of intellect to perform. Um, I'm not saying the comic always has to be the smartest guy in the room, but he or she has to be damn close because comedy is about taking an audience by surprise with the same trick every 15 seconds. Magicians get to at least change tricks. Comics are doing the same thing and it keeps getting them by surprise. Um, and it requires a level, it, and jokes themselves are an intellectual exercise, ultimately. They are, what are the pieces of information that can't be in the setup so that the audience can put that together after hearing the punchline and the coin can drop and they can have that moment of recognition that allows them to be surprised by a thought and laugh. And it's very, it's an intellectual game. Um, and the hyper-intelligent are more likely to be depressive. They're more likely to go into thought spirals. They're more likely to get caught up in uh, and be aware of ironies and hypocrisies and doublespeak and all the things that the less intelligent are constantly inundated with to such an extent that they become the fabric of the experience and not something they can recognize. Frequently, all comics are doing is taking commonly used words and phrases and manipulating double meanings of which most people go a whole lifetime unaware. Right. So, among those who are best suited to be comics, there are likely also to be a great many of those who are best suited to be depressives. Being aware of hypocrisy around one constantly is likely to lead to a level of depression and good jokes. One of my great fears when I went on antidepressants, and I am now on uh, Paxil, uh, I, I see a strict Orwellian therapist who medicates me against political outrage. When I wrote that joke, my wife said, shouldn't it be Huxleyan? And I knew she was right, but Orwellian is more accessible. And the medication keeps me from caring that much about the details. But I feared the moment I, I, I realized I was depressive and needed medication, uh, 
I feared I would not be funny anymore. What if all my creativity goes away? What if all of my drive goes away? What if my political passion goes away? What if all of that is driven by the depression? And what I found out is that all the depression was doing was making it more difficult to take action. First of all, I was so in need of love and reassurance that I would say things I disagreed with if it would get me a laugh on stage. I was so enraged by political stuff, so spiralingly sad about the horrors in the world that I would go weeks feeling like there was nothing I could do to change anything. And I wouldn't write, and I wouldn't shower, and I wouldn't shave, and I wouldn't be pleasant to be around. And once I was on medication and was able to not be just paralyzed by this emotional state, I found out that the intellect is still working. I'm still, I still care about humanity. I still think that we shouldn't kill one another for property or belief systems. I still think that jokes are funny and I still write funny things. Um, but I do it with more consistency and less desperation. And let's despair. So, this is a hilarious interview. <laughs> uh, I have a hilarious follow-up question. Oh, good. Can you describe in more detail what depression feels like? Oh, God, yes. Um, I, I, well, I will tell a story about myself. Because well, that's let me let me give you the context for the question. Yes, which is that uh, I have been around the block with depression. Um, but I have friends who are not get out of bed, not leave the house depressed. And I'm a high-functioning, miserable person. <laughs> um, but not, don't leave the house, like, you know what I mean? And so, I, and, it, and I'm, and I, you know, it may be that my issue is more anxiety than depression. I, I fall, every night I fall asleep and then I wake up and check all the locks in the house. Um, uh, like half an hour after I go to sleep. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's the conditioning. The Nazis could be coming at any time. That's right. Uh, so the, so, but I, there, I realize that I, like many people don't, you know, and, and I mean, and I thought about this a lot when Robin killed himself too, that, that, when people talk about depression as a source of paralysis, I don't get that. I don't, it's not a feeling that I understand. And so I would like to understand it better. Um, okay, I'll talk a little bit about, I'll come back to that, the source of paralysis thing. I did not know what depression felt like until eight, ten months after I'd gotten on Paxil when my shrink said, let's try weaning you off. We'll cut back from one pill a night to three quarters of a pill a night for two weeks to start. Because 
apparently if you just stop taking it, it totally messes with your brain and your chemistry. So I cut back by a quarter pill. And I was driving somewhere to a meeting that I had wanted for a long time that I had been excited about. But now for two days I'd been taking less by a quarter of a pill of Paxil. And I was in the car planning what I was going to be angry about when I got there. Um, I was figuring out, you know, how difficult it was going to be to park around there and was I going to have to pay for parking to go to a meeting? Was I, that didn't seem fair and these idiot drivers. And I was like, I was making all these plans. I had plenty of time and I was finding reasons to be stressed about traffic. And I was, and I recognized this as something that I used to do constantly and hadn't noticed until it had gone away for several months and was suddenly back. I was like, oh my God, I did this constantly. I was planning what I would be angry about. I was planning what I would be sad about. I was planning. And I got to the place, and it was very easy to find parking. And I went in, and I had the meeting. And as I was on the elevator leaving the meeting, I was thinking about how I would react if they said insult. I was, I was putting insulting responses to my work in the mouths of people who had said nothing insulting in my head and figuring out how I could respond to that if they said that. And I got in my car and I called the psychiatrist and I said, okay, tell me if this makes any sense. I've cut back by a quarter of a pill a day for two days and I can feel all the darkness in the world gathering in my car and climbing up my spine to infest the crevices in my brain. And he said, wow, and this was your first bout of depression that we were treating? And I said, what, are you kidding me? I've been depressed my whole life. He said, oh, stay on it. Apparently we found the drug that you are attuned to. Stay on. Um, for me, depression came in the form of internal dialogue. Not just internal monologue, but internal dialogue with everybody I was encountering or about to encounter or had just encountered. It came in the form of constant self-criticism and constant criticism of the world around me. Um, in terms of the immobilizing stuff, that would happen to me. I, for years, I thought it meant I was about to write something. It turns out that I was using writing as a form of self-medication to, to get myself free of it. I had created a mental trick for myself where I was saying, okay, if I'm this miserable and this immobilized, by what, it means my brain is working on something that I'm not allowed to see yet. And then when it's ready, it'll show me. Um, but it was more than that. It was the sense that anything I imagined doing seemed so pointless and exhausting that I couldn't see a reason to actually do it. Taking out the trash, like the basic behaviors of life, putting the dishes in the dishwasher. Just, there's gonna be more dishes tomorrow. I might as well just clean the fork I need right now. 
yeah, it's not something that would have gone bad. I don't even need to clean it. Um, it, it just the slightest expense of energy seemed like a waste, and I could see no reason for it. Um, and uh, there was a level of terror in it, um, a level of self-protection against disappointment. Um, I've written scripts and nobody's bought them. Why should I even sit down to write another one? Um, so, Maria Bamford has a line that crushes me when I hear it. She says, I don't think of myself as depressed. It's more like being immobilized with hope. Um, and there's that, everything is too big. Everything is too big to grapple with and just leave me alone. I want to be under my covers. Um, yeah. And it, the, you're not wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, that the part of the tension that you're describing, I mean, it's interesting that you, you sort of glanced on, like, it's, there is an empirical basis for that assessment for the wor of the world. Yes. So if you are looking for proof of that worldview, it is not hard to come by. That's correct. In my, well, in the Modern Depression Guidebook, I offer handy lists of things in the world you can contemplate that'll help you build your depression and uh, exercises to improve your self-loathing. It's, it's, it's a good book for, for finding your way deeper into depression. Um, that's the point of the book, is that it's going to help you find your darkest blues and your deepest lows. Um, and once one is in that spiral, uh, it's very easy to find proof of that around. On the other hand until one has broken out of that spiral. One doesn't know it, but there is also proof of possibility in the world. Um, so, I never tied these things to, these, these two things together before. You're welcome. But I'm going to now. A guy I know who wants to be a storyteller came to me and said, I have this thing that happened. I can't figure out what the point of it was. And I listened to him tell me about this thing that had happened. And I said, well, what do you want to say with the story? And he said, well, that's the thing. I listen to your stories, and clearly things happen to you, and you always know exactly what the point is. And I said, no. There is no point to things that happen. The, the world is not a novel. Your life is pointless. But things happen and you decide what you want to take away from them and what you would like other people to be able to glean from your experience. And then you write the story so that it supports that point. Don't look for something that's inherently there. Choose what you want to say, and then say that thing. You, you're Jewish? Yes. This, this is a very Jewish thing to say. 
Now, the same thing is true in the depressive mind or the non-depressive mind. The world is full of horror and atrocity and injustice, and all of it can be hilarious. And the world is full of wonder and possibility and change and flashes of hope and love and all of it can be tragic. And the question is, what the point is that you want to take away from it and what your perception is going to impose on it all? Uh, and sadly, much of that is chemical. Pure chemical. It's not something you can decide to change for yourself necessarily. Some people can, but for some people, it's purely chemical. Right. I mean, the what it what it reminds me of is um, when I uh, my wedding was a was a Jewish wedding was officiated by a rabbi who was an atheist, um, and you know, Jewish renewal, uh, and he'd say, said that. In Judaism, from his perspective, things are not holy because they are inherently holy, but that things are are that my dad and my dad used to say this. I don't believe in God, but I believe in holiness. That we make things holy in our relation to them. That the holiness is what we, based on the attention or the intention that we attribute to the things that we encounter in the world, and that you know that that's how we make meaning of things uh, and that it's you know in some ways the most depressing thing is also the that you're describing is also the most hopeful thing which is it's an act of faith like that whether things have meaning or don't have meaning is an act of faith that you can choose to have I I I know I, I I have no faith I don't believe I don't believe that things have meaning or don't have meaning, and it's an act of faith. I believe that things have no meaning, and we have the power to endow them with meaning, and to learn and choose what kind of world we want to live in, and to take from every story the, the knowledge that we choose to take from it, the message that we choose to take from it. Hmm. I tweeted the joke uh, shortly after Robin died. I was very depressed briefly after Robin died. Uh, and I tweeted a one-liner that I wrote several years ago that had just been sitting around in my psyche somewhere. Uh, Did you ever put your head in the oven just to see how it feels and it's like coming home? And I got all this worried Twitter response back. Dude, are you okay? Dude, yeah, I'm fine. I wrote a joke. It's a dark, dark joke. Yeah. Uh, do you think, um, I suspect, uh, I'm not going to be su surprised by your answer to this. Do you think that, that, uh, in facing these horrible things that sort of what's the balance of needing to be able to face them and laugh about them or, you know, get your mind off of it and, and the, the escapist impulse? Um, that's interesting. 
in terms of art, I think there is no more powerful tool for exploring the dark and the forbidden and the taboo and the dangerous and the psychically intrusive and the tragically human than humor. I think it allows people, it, it, it allows people to accept discussion of things that they would otherwise completely avoid. And I talk a lot about the idea that entertainment is the word people use when they don't want to take responsibility for what they say with their art, which is why the entertainment industry never acknowledges that it is creating art, never acknowledges that it, that it might be saying anything, when in fact it is constantly inundating us with messages most of which are comforting and placating and ultimately dangerous. Um, if you have questions on that, we can go into it a little more in a moment. But um, it is dedicated toward, the, the, the entertainment industry is dedicated to manufacturing a product and profiting from it. And if they really took time to think about the fact that they're saying something, there would be a whole other level of stuff that they would need to grapple with in terms of the morality of what you say when you're speaking to a billion people. And that is a, a whole issue that never gets looked at in the entertainment industry. Now, escapism, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I recently had a conversation with a writer who asked me how I have the discipline to sit down and write every day. And I find the process escapist. To me, it doesn't take discipline to sit down and write every day. It takes discipline to get laundry done. Right, I get that. I feel, I mean, I feel like if I don't get on stage for a few days, I start feeling like I'm gonna lose my mind. Yeah, that's, that's the time that you're escaping. That's not discipline. That is pure self-indulgence. Um, and nobody wants to hear that because they all want to think, I could be a writer if I just had the discipline. But no, what makes a writer is the genuine desire to write. Um, so the process becomes escape for the artist. I think when all one is creating for others is escape, then you're getting into something that isn't art. Then you're getting into something that is avoidance. And, and is ultimately unhealthy. I think art should always, at some level, be challenging, be expanding, be pushing, be changing the way the observer of the art, whether it is visual art or performance art or uh, conceptual art, the, the audience has to have his or her worldview changed somehow 
even if just a little bit, from what they were thinking beforehand. Um, so, I, uh, I have Kaiser, and Kaiser is... I also have Kaiser. Notoriously bad for mental health services. Um, I decided I wanted to see a therapist a while ago, and I called to make an appointment, and they said, are you suicidal? And I said, no. And they said, are you addicted to anything? And I said, no. And they said, are you hurting yourself or anyone else? And I said, no. And they're like, well, why are you calling us? And I was like, because I start crying after 90 seconds of a Nick Cave song. Uh, you know, I have non-specific late 30s man sadness. Like, what's the, you know, they're like, well, we'll send you to a group. You know, we have short-term therapy, six to eight sessions. And I had to wheedle them to, to get my six to eight sessions. And uh, on the one hand, you know, as you say, like, we're not talking about depression and mental health enough. And people who have needs are not getting their needs met. At the same time, there is a highly profitable industry that preys upon us. Yes. Uh, to make people believe that there is something wrong with them and that a pill can fix them. Yes, and it's worse than that because uh, it totally... It seems completely clear to me that there is a conflict of interest when the news organizations, whether it is cable news or network news, are sponsored by anti-anxiety and anti-depression medications. Um, the brain, for evolutionary reasons, the human brain is hardwired to look at the threat, to look at the danger, to be aware, to be afraid, um, to prioritize fear over pleasure. That is to say, if there's a fuzzy bunny, you're going to look at the fuzzy bunny. If there's a fuzzy bunny and an angry bear, your focus is on the angry bear every time. And the heart rate increases and the adrenaline flows and the fear mechanism goes into play. Now, we live in a world where there aren't that many angry bears wandering around. There aren't. I, you know, my home has never been invaded. Um, my wife has never been raped. I have never been held at gunpoint. No terrorist has ever blown up my block. But if I watch the news, I am told that there are home invasions going on constantly and that uh, ISIS wants to be here coming across our borders and all this other nonsense that I should be afraid of because that keeps us focused. That's their job is keep us focused and showing us fuzzy bunnies won't do it. They're going to keep showing us angry bears and making us frightened and then saying by Xanax. Are you frightened? Are you anxious? Buy Xanax. Look at the bear. Look, there's a bear. Buy Xanax. Xanax will help with your fear and your anxiety. There's bears. Everywhere you look, there's bears. Buy Xanax. It'll help. May cause rectal bleeding and suicidal tendencies. And right. You'd think that they would just, you know, 
here's bear repellent. They do some of that too. You know, uh, we need to put more money into the military. The military is being cut. We need to put more money into the military. Well, maybe, maybe if we didn't treat a huge portion of the world as if it is a gas station and then beat everybody up when they raise their prices on gas, maybe the bear wouldn't be so hungry all the time. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it, it reminds me of that, um, this a great Doug Stanhope bit about, about, uh, about psych meds. I don't know. I haven't seen Doug in years. Uh, it was on one of his specials where he talks about, you know, like, you got a, sh you know, you got a shitty job. Your job is to alphabetize files. Of course you feel like shit, you know, <laughs> like, you know, but people don't want you to think about, I, I feel like shit because I have a shitty job and, you know, the world is closing in on me and I have no power over my life and I live alone and I'm lonely, you know. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, you know, psych meds are the opiate of the masses now. Um, and there's always something. There, uh, there's, it is the nature of, I think, um, capitalism and before that feudalism. I, I have a, an economic theory and uh, and I say theory in this case in in much the way that uh, Republicans use it to demean global warming. Um, this is a theory that I have done nothing to prove. This is a theory cut of whole cloth, and I wove the bolt to begin with. But um, my theory is this: capitalism grew out of feudalism. Properly regulated and maturing, it grows towards socialism. I, left, don't, I don't think that's your theory. Left unregulated, oh. it devolves back toward feudalism. Right, that's... Uh, Paul Krugman's theory. Rosa Luxemburg. Is it really? Socialism or barbarism. I will need to read that now. Um, there, there you go. Uh, the... Uh, so, you, um, you've like, you've written a lot of jokes. Like, somebody, somebody, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I have. Like, you've written jokes for Jay Leno. Yes. Who is not known as the most erudite comedian of all. No. I, I did not have a wonderful time writing for Jay. Um, I wrote. He was doing Monday nights only. Johnny was still doing the show. Jay was doing Monday nights. And uh, I submitted freelance to him. He wanted 50 jokes minimum a week. And he would pay, I think it was 75 bucks for whichever ones he was going to do. And didn't tell you which ones he was going to do. He had to watch the show and see if any of your stuff got on. Um, and then invoice? No, then a check would come. And if you weren't watching, you'd get a check and you wouldn't know what was what was gone, and you'd call and you'd say, what did they use? Say, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I, I very much wanted the written for The Tonight Show credit, and I needed every penny I could get at that point, so I was, I was doing it. And I was submitting for eight weeks in abject futility. Nothing was getting on. And, wait, how did you even get in the mix to be able to submit? 
That's a different story. I'll come back to it if you okay. like. Um, and after these several weeks, he did one of my jokes on the air, and it was the most innocuous joke I had ever written or submitted. It was, uh, it was this. A dog in Van Nuys, a guard dog at a jewelry store in Van Nuys, swallowed a diamond ring worth $5,000. And just to give you a sense of the magnitude of this event, that's $35,000 dog dollars. <laughs> that was the, after all these weeks of jokes, that's the joke he bought first. I was like, I, hey, I got a joke on The Tonight Show. I can say I wrote for The Tonight Show. And uh, I think I sold a couple more, but then I got a, a fax, remember faxes? Um, that's not true. I got a phone call. I would fax them in at that point. Um, but I got a phone call saying, hey, listen, uh, Jay wants to do a balanced monologue. So if you write jokes bashing the right, I want you to write an equal number of jokes bashing the left. And I said, I can't do that. And they said, what do you mean you can't do that? And I said, well, I'm a leftist. And if I send you 10 jokes bashing the left and 10 jokes bashing the right, and I think they're all funny and you buy five jokes bashing the left, it's not a balanced monologue, and I'm supporting ideas I don't believe in. How about this? For every joke you buy from me, you buy one from Jeff Wayne. And they said, you know what, why don't you go ahead and not submit anymore? And I said, okay, and this will, this will give you the time frame on it. Ross Perot dropped out of the presidential race. And then, two months later, got back into the presidential race. And I hadn't written for Jay for two months, month and a half. And I got a phone call saying, Ross Perot just got back into the race. We want to buy everything you've got on Ross Perot. Uh, you said, you know, we found all the stuff you wrote. We want to buy all of it. And I said, okay, there's one joke from that batch that I'm using. And uh, they said, okay, which one is it? And I told them, and they crossed that one off. And they sent me a big check for, I don't know, $1,400, $1,500 um, for, like, all these jokes that I'd written. I was like, all right, cool. Uh, and then I didn't write for them anymore. I got in because Jimmy Brogan uh, taught me. Do you know Jimmy? The crowd work master. Yeah. Um, Jimmy, when I was 26... This is a great story, and I've just recently started telling it on stage. Um, I got permission. Uh, I was, in 1987, I was the house MC at Chrissy Francis's Hollywood Comedy Room. Jimmy Brogan has no act. His whole act is, where are you from, what do you do for a living? And he's really funny and very personable. And very good at that. And he was beloved by Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He did it every six months. The first time he auditioned, Macaulay, the guy who used to book the show, called him into his office and said, what do you want to do on the show? And Jimmy said, what do you do for a living? Where are you from? And Macaulay said, no, 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 you got to do jokes. And he said, this is what I do. Where are you from? What do you do for a living? And Macaulay said, go write jokes. Come back. So he wrote six and a half minutes of jokes, came back, did The Tonight Show, and every six months he would go back on, he would have to write jokes. And he came into uh, Chrissy Francis's room, and I took my job as MC so seriously. 
I had to make the acts feel as though they were my guests. I was going to make the audience feel as though I was introducing them to good talent. I was going to create this environment that was conducive to the best possible comedy because I was a kid and I was sure that it was all up to me to do everything. And there was this guy who used to come in and try to sell jokes to all the comics, but he was not a comic. And as far as I could tell, he did not know how to write jokes. And Jimmy was getting ready to do a Tonight Show appearance, and he had an, an innocuous joke. He had a joke that was, I go to Supercuts to get my hair cut. Because it's $8, well, eight and a quarter with tip. That was the joke. He comes off stage, and this guy, Marty, is all over. I got a joke for you, Jimmy. I got a joke for you. What about this? What about this? You could do this joke. You could do, uh, uh, I, I, uh, one, one week I didn't have enough money. I was, I was a little short on cash. You could do it that way. I was a little short on cash, uh, so I went to Pretty Good Cuts. What do you think, Jimmy? Can you use that? Pretty good cuts. Because I didn't, I didn't have enough money for, for, for super cuts. So I went to pretty good cuts. You think you could use that? And I didn't want Jimmy to be assailed by this guy. I just brought up the next act. So I said, Jimmy, you need super cuts jokes? I got super cuts jokes for you. And I steered him away from Marty and thanked him for his set and for coming into the club. And I was being generally gracious. And he said, what do you got on super cuts? And I said, I am... Um, I only have one Supercuts joke, Jimmy, but I wasn't trying to sell you jokes. I was just trying to rescue you from Marty. And he said, oh, that's very sweet of you. What do you got on Supercuts? And I said, I got this one stupid joke. Every time I go to Supercuts for like two or three weeks afterwards, all my friends are going, did you just take a nap? And he said, oh, that's a pretty good joke. Let me try it out. Uh, and I said, oh, okay. How, how much do you get for jokes? And he said, let me go out and try it for a week. And if it's good, I'll give you 25 bucks. And I said, okay. And a week later, he came back. And he gave me a check for $50. And I said, uh, thank you, Jimmy, but you said 25 And he said, yeah, that was in case it didn't work. Never take less than 50 bucks for a joke. Uh, that's a pretty good joke. You should probably be taking more than that. And it occurred to me for, for the first time that I could sell, write and sell jokes to people. And for a long time, that was a source of income for me. And then didn't see Jimmy for years, like 26 years. Three years ago, I'm at the Ventura Harbor Comedy Festival. Jimmy and I are on an all-headliners evening together. And I said, Jimmy, I owe you a th some gratitude because you got me started writing jokes and selling them for a living. And, uh, and I want to know if you mind me telling a story about a joke. This first, and he said, what was, what was, and I told him the joke. He said, oh, that's a, I used to get a laugh with that joke. And I said, yeah, it's, it's an okay joke. He said, yeah, that was a great joke. Yeah, you can tell that story if you want. That's fine. And I said, thank you. Uh, and the next night, I brought him 50 bucks. And he said, why are you giving me $50? And I said, because I'm going to tell the story. I'll be using the joke. And he said, now that I remember it, I'm going to start doing it again, too. And I said, so you don't want me to? He said, no, it's fine. If they see you, and then, you know, two months later, they see me, or five years later, they see me after they saw you, then it's just a great callback. Nothing but generosity, nothing but kindness. Uh, and he got me started writing jokes for people, and he was very close friends with Jay. Uh, he executive produced the show when Jay took over for a bunch of years, and... He said, when, when Jay started took over the Mondays, he gave me a call. He said, D 
Dylan, this is happening. You should be on the fax list. You should be on the on the freelancing list. It's your best chance of getting in when he, and then it didn't wind up being a good chance for me to do that at all. There's something um, about the f- the format of late night, like late night jokes, where uh, that you know, I, like we were talking earlier today about sort of the joke technicians, yes. and that it's like a puzzle, and that you know, with these late night jokes, there's a lot of like, you know. Baba Baba, the fiscal cliff, Baba Baba Kardashian, you know? You, well, yeah, like, it becomes formulaic. And, and, but it's like, it's like these things that have a joke structure but have no point of view. You know, it's sort of like I'll watch these jokes and be like, I see why that's a funny joke, but I can't tell who is the butt of the joke. Like, if I turned that joke into an unfunny thesis statement, I don't know what the thesis statement of that joke would be. I have a story that revolves around joke structure, that television uses joke structures without using the joke, uh, and I find it infuriating. Um, and that is, that is part of what becomes, this takes us back to what is dangerous about entertainment as an industry, as opposed to art as a creative and exploratory process. Um, it's also the problem with having no pure science, with science seeming meaningless to people unless there is profit. Um, One of the miraculous things about the human mind and the human brain is that we learn from stories. From the first person standing in a cave with the firelight on him, saying, and then Og thought, run in front of the buffalo, don't chase from behind. And from that day forward, we had meat. You know, and the room, the, the, the cave full of people went, and it was permanently embedded in their brains, this is the best way to hunt the buffalo, right? I mean, it's, it's, we internalize other people's experiences through the storytelling process, and that's what great theater is, and that's what great storytelling is, and what great painting is, and what it's art. It is the expression of a worldview and an idea in an indelible way, in an indelible presentation. Now. With television, we have this incredible communications potential. And we manufacture at a tremendous rate half hours in which people get along, experience conflict that is almost always based on minor misunderstanding, and overcome it to be friends at the end and exactly the same as they were at the beginning. Nothing changes. They still live in the same apartment. They're still buddies. Life goes on. Everything's fine. As long as the single conflict is resolved, everything's fine. And hours, hour-longs, in which... uh, Criminals are 
deviant, half-sketched figures, heroes are infallible, and bad guys are always caught and punished. So we are constantly fed a story that says everything is fine exactly the way it is, and there are heroes that we should trust protecting us from this fringe group. And that's what the world consists of. And we are told this same story for about four hours a night, every night, regardless of what channel we watch. And at some level, our entire nation has internalized it. Well, it's the police. You gotta figure they know what they're doing. No, you don't. Have you talked to actual police? They're blue collar workers trying to get by with a frequently racist, always classist worldview. Um, and they don't catch the bad guys all the time. And the bad guys who are really the ones that need to be worried about are acting completely within the law. Right. I mean, I, I, even, you know, I, who am as much of a critic as, of this, this system as anybody, uh, caught, caught myself around Ebola. Like, I, you know, I was reading about Ebola and I started panicking about, like, you know, pandemic that could destroy civilization. And then there's some part of me that, like, can't believe that white America will let things get that out of hand, you know? Uh, and here's the cool thing. There could be a pandemic that could alter civilization. And it could be stopped by scientists. We don't know. But there's no point to it either way. It's just a thing that happens. And what we choose to take from it, to do with it, to do about it, is up to us. I, I think that, that feels like the end. I choose not to live in fear. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. That was the NATO Sessions with Dylan Brody, production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. For more information, go to 3200stories.org. Please like, review, share us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Uh, the NATO Sessions is edited by Steve Bissinger, produced by Dan Wolf, uh, theme music by DJ Real. You can follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you.